G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device, and we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. I'm not, not sure we can actually uh, get any reviews on Spotify yet, but um, but yes, but obviously a five-star review would be great. We really appreciate a couple of minutes of your time to leave us a review. So joining Brian and myself in our virtual studio, we're going to talk to Dr. Erica Tinson, one of our lecturers here in veterinary emergency and critical care at the RBC. Hey Erica, how are you going? Hi Dom, I'm well, how are you? Not too bad, as we commented, <laughs> that British phase that we, we, we say. Um, so we, we were going to talk about um, about, about sodium and, uh, um, and I suppose the management of uh, dysnatremias, if you, if you like, or the, hyper, the highs and lows of, of, of sodium. So, so could I um, ask you sort of in, in maybe in context do you think you identify these patients sort of what sort of patients are we talking about and do you think you identify them when they when they sort of come in or is it something that you actually just you you need to have a an electrolyte panel and are they presented cases or are they cases we might managing for a while that suddenly get sodium sort of disturbances what, what's your feel about the cases that we sort of see with these problems yeah, I guess, yeah, as you say, we sort of see a, a range of these type of cases and sometimes they're presenting to us with the abnormality. So coming through the door with either a low sodium or a high sodium or it's something that's developing in hospital. In other words, something that maybe we've not necessarily um, intentionally done to them, but, um, you know, through using different types of fluid therapy and or not being fully aware of their water requirements, um, you know, they develop a hyponatremia or hypernatremia in hospital. Um, I would say we probably see the derangements develop in hospital relatively commonly, but they're normally sort of mild to moderate abnormalities that develop in hospital. Um, I feel like the ones that are presenting for the hyponatremia or the hypernatremia, um, they're presenting because they're unwell from that potentially, um, and they're the ones that may have the more sort of severe clinical signs or the ones that we're more, um, yeah, uh, I guess worried or anxious about managing because they could be the trickier ones. But I guess in summary, you know, we see we see the sort of mild to moderate abnormalities in hospital really commonly, um, and and we see the sort of more severe ones present to the hospital less commonly, but they're kind of the trickier ones, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and do you do you have in your in your sort of mind's eye do you do you have a frame of reference that is? And, and I know we we treat obviously the patient, not a number, but do you have a frame of reference where you are concerned about the sodium level? Like, I, I suppose concerned mm. as in you need to do something specifically for that, that the patient is unlikely to solve themselves or yeah. changes in sodium you're you're worried about? Yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's not really written really anywhere really clearly, you know, what number specifically you need to be concerned above or below, you know. Um, and I think that is a little bit to do with, you know, it, it depends on what else is going on with the patient um, and also how quickly that derangement developed um, because I think you can see sort of, uh, you know, more severe or less severe signs depending on what the underlying problem is and how quickly they got there. So, for example, 
you know, you can see patients with a, a sodium of 128 with no clinical signs um, because they've got there slowly and they've kind of been living with that low sodium for a period of time and they've adapted to it as opposed to, you know, another patient that's dropped from 145 um, to, you know, 128 really quickly, they may be really, really severely affected by that change. Um, so I guess kind of considering all of those caveats, you know, and still trying to come up with a number that's scary, <laughs> um, I think, you know, definitely a number like 100, below 130 millimoles per litre of sodium is kind of the patient where I'm thinking, you probably want to hospitalize that one and 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 um, be watching what's going on with it and getting a handle of you know what its underlying disease process is. I think probably below one twenty five is when you're getting quite worried, and then I think below one twenty is like a real panic value. Um, you know, when you're looking at sodiums of, I would say somewhere between 130 to, um, you know, getting up to the normal sodium range. Those are typically the ones where if you're managing their underlying disease, like say you've had a patient come in with vomiting or diarrhea and they're a bit hyponatremic and they've got a sodium of 130, potentially just managing those clinical signs of vomiting and diarrhea and supporting them a bit, they're, they're, they're probably going to be able to sort out that sodium imbalance on their own. Um but yeah, I would say those would be my kind of numbers. Less than 120 is, yeah, really panicking. Um, less than 125, I'm probably going to be wanting to do some specific sodium fluid management there to try and um, correct that. I, I think above 130, I'm probably just going to be treating the underlying disease. I guess, you, you know, we've got to consider the other end of things in the hypernatremia side of things as well. Um I feel like if they're, you know, we're talking about severe hypernatremias as being above 170 millimoles per litre. Um, so I feel like, you know, if you've got, a, if you've got a, a dog or a cat with a sodium of 165 to 168, let's say, if they're, you know, able to drink and, and, and correct that on their own, I may not be doing anything too... Um, specific in terms of, of management at that at that level, but I think above 170, you've got to start getting a little bit more careful with things. That, that's that's great. Thanks, her. But and puts it into into a framework. And when, when we when we talk, if we go back to the sort of maybe the hyponatremia or, or, or in, in sodium in general, what what are the clinical signs that you think we're that could be related to, to hyponatremia that we um, that we that we might see and and we should be concerned about. Um, with with hypernatremia, what, would, what we could do with or both, with both, yeah, yeah, it's it's. Um, I think so. I guess the way I approach these cases, and I'm, this is maybe a little bit of a long winded answer, <laughs> um, but I just wanted to sort of touch on conceptually that um, when you're thinking about these cases, um, because I I think it can help you understand what is going to be going on clinically, um, and then answer your question that way. Um, but I try to think about these cases in terms of if you've got a derangement in sodium, you're going to have either, or a combination of either a problem with total sodium body balance, so total body sodium, or um, a problem with water balance. So you've got to be thinking about those two things um, kind of independently, but then understanding how they're related. So when you're thinking about total body sodium, you're sort of thinking about a patient that could have had 
an increase in sodium or a decrease in sodium. Um, so a, a sodium load, um, think about whenever we have more sodium, water is going to follow that sodium. Therefore, a sodium load is going to equate to uh, an increase in circulating volume. A sodium depletion is going to equate to a, a decrease in circulating volume. So if a patient is suffering from sodium load or sodium depletion, you're going to see clinical signs that are relating to circulating volume. So you could see sort of um, changes in cardiovascular signs, so fluid overload versus um, hypovolemia, hypotension, those type of things. On the other side, when you're thinking about um, is this patient suffering from a problem with water balance, so an excess of water relative to sodium versus a depletion of water relative to sodium, um, those things, that effect on the body is to do with tonicity. So it's changing the concentration of sodium ions relative to that water. Um, so then you're dealing with issues with hypertonic stress on cells or hypotonic stress on cells. So that effect is to do with either, you know, cells shrinking or cell swelling. And that's going to translate to um, clinical signs most commonly related to the neurological system. Um, as we know, you know, with your, um, I guess, skull cavity, the, 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 the cells and tissue within the brain, there's not a lot of uh, room for movement there for swelling. So if, you're, if you've got um, tissue swelling there, you're going to see neurological signs. Um, and, and so the, the typical kind of signs we'll see with that kind of hypotonic stress is going to be, you know, seizures, mental obtentation, um, lethargy, ataxia, those kind of things. So I try to think broadly speaking, we're thinking about circulating volume signs and or um, hypertonic, hypotonic stress on, on cell signs. So, so we, we always, um, uh, well, when we talk, get one neurologists involved in, in cases and um, talking about um, the um, <clears throat> whether they're seizuring or have any uh, neurological, I suppose, like de de derangements and they ask are there any extra cranial cause for that, mm. then, then occasionally, I suppose, like sodium, can be on that list so if so you at uh, what do, do you have again like i suppose i shouldn't, shouldn't put a number on it but oh. do you think like if it's less than 120 that oh. we you can see these signs or is it or is it more like a, a stadium for uh, 110 or 100 yeah um good question i i think we can see signs um at less than 125 um but you're right like you know the lower you go the more likely you are going to see those signs again it's going to depend on i guess if the patient has an underlying um brain pathology already that's you know a bit of inflammation um already there then they're going to be more susceptible um to fluid shifts and and um, yeah hypotonic stress, so you may see it at higher values. But I think we can see signs at less than 125. But yeah, you're you're right. Like it's going to be more likely to see signs at the lower you go down, so less than 120. Uh, and again, it's to do with how quickly they get there as well. And if it happens slowly, you might not see anything. If it happens quickly, yeah, you could see it at higher values relatively speaking well that, that, that it's a good point because we, we when we talk about sort of correcting um sodium levels so there's always the caveat in, in, in textbooks that um depends on how quickly that sodium level change to mm. how quickly you can correct it but do you think clinically i, I know it, i've i find it very difficult to know whether 
um, and most of the time I err on the side of caution, there's probably a chronic thing rather than an acute derangement unless we've got some um, uh, some evidence, you know, some some uh, actually lab values that, that, that say otherwise. Is that is that the way that you approach it as well? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think if if you don't if you don't know for sure, so you don't have that um, pre-change blood value to tell you it's definitely an acute problem, then I would always err on the side of treating it as a chronic problem, because you know, if, okay, it's a it's a bit more of a faff to do it slowly, um, and you've got a bit more hospitalization time, but the the consequences of um, treating a chronic case as if it was a, an acute one and say for example on the, on the side of hyponatremia bringing that sodium up too quickly um, when the body has adjusted to living you know in a state of hyponatremia is um, there, there are pretty serious consequences of that so um, they talk about the you know osmotic demyelination syndrome um, and that can be quite serious so I think you're if you're not sure that it's acute, you're always you're always better off to treat that patient as if it's been um, as if it's adapted to that hyponatremia um, or hypernatremia on the other side of things, um, and and change things slowly so that it has um, time to adjust. Yeah. And and say so if we go for the the hyponatremic patient that says that we're we're probably showing some neurological signs. Are you are you quite aggressive with initial therapy, and what what do you what do you think about? I know we we spoke mm. about this uh, briefly um, uh, yesterday, but what do you do? You, do you think we're good at, with our treatments for this that they go to where we expect them to go, or do you think we're kind of um, not as accurate as we as we perceive we are with with what we're trying to achieve? Um. Yeah, so I think there's two questions there. You're asking about the how how aggressive to be and whether we get to where we expect to go. I guess on the um, on the on the managing them aggressively and not aggressively side of things, I think I, I think I'm kind of changing a little bit in the way I'm managing these over time and 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 as because they you know they're tricky cases and it takes a time a while to get. Um, your head around them and I think I've, I've evolved a little bit in my management of these my sort of the way I approach them now is if I've got a severely hyponatremic patient that is showing severe neurological signs and even life-threatening neurological signs let's say that they're, they're, they're seizuring even though we're sort of taught that you shouldn't increase the sodium if it's a chronic case more than 0.5 mil equivalents per litre per hour or other ways to kind of say it is don't increase it by 10 to 12 mil equivalents per kilo uh, per litre per day, sorry. Um, I think that if they're actively seizuring and, you know, on the cusp of passing away, I think there's definitely an argument to uh, um, bring that sodium up quickly for that first part. Um, and, and in people, they talk about increasing it by about somewhere between four to six millimoles per litre to just kind of get them out of that critical, critical state. So, you know, you can go say we had the, the example of a patient of a like severely low sodium of 105 millimoles per litre and it's seizing. Okay, I have in my mind, I really don't want to increase it more than 12 millimoles per day, but this patient's on the, cut, on the edge here, it's seizuring, it's really bad. I'm going to bring that um, sodium up quickly 
for about five millimoles per liter. And then I'm going to slow everything down because as long as I still achieve that 12 millimoles per liter per day, that's the most important thing, you know, rather than you can still do a bit of a jump quickly initially and then slow it down as long as you hit that target over the 24 hour period. If they're not seizing and, you know, I'm I'm worried about them um, passing away, then I'll just do the the slow increase of 0.5 milliequivalents um, per litre per, per hour or 12 milliequivalents per litre per day. I think you'll see in textbooks they'll say sort of 10 to 12 millimole per litre per day and you're like, why are they saying two different things? You know, there's there's not – we know, like from the evidence, we know it's safe safer to do it slowly. We just don't really know how slowly – you know, what what slow is better than another slow in terms of millimoles per hour. So I think when people are saying the 10 millimole per litre uh, per day, that just is just equating to making sure you're under half a mil equivalent per hour, per litre per hour, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I don't believe there's any safety um, uh, or, or prospective studies looking at safety or speed of correction in, in people either. Mm. So I don't think we're, we're uh, um, you know, off the off the mark there at all mm. and, and do you use mm. use hypertonic or or would you use like 0.9 sodium chloride um, to achieve that or does it yeah. depend on what you have or um i would i would tend to in that situation you know when you're trying to bring that first bit up um quickly um i would give hypertonic saline um we have i think we have so there's different different um, concentrations of hypertonic saline, right? There's the, you can have 3%, you can have 7%, you can have 23%. So I think, you know, you've got to be aware of what you've got in stock. Um, and then you're yeah, working, working with what you've got. I think we've got the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's like the roughly 7% and we've got the 20% or the 23%. Is that right? Yeah, I, th- I think we mainly have the yeah the seven. Um, it's like seven point two percent in in uh, in 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 yeah with us. But I'm sure yeah there definitely yeah. are others. And I think the I think in North America they have I think it's mainly three point five, but maybe a, or three yeah. percent saline. And and I think I think they used to be five percent uh, as well, but five percent gets confused. I think with five percent dextrose free water. So I think that's why it changed in people. Um, mm. So, so to because avoiding the wrong fluid. Yeah, the the, the tricky thing with that is, um, you know, you've made if you've made the decision right, I need to bring that initial part of the sodium up quickly, and then you're in an emergency situation, and then you're like, well, gosh, I've got to look up these sodium deficit formulas and work out how much of this fluid I need to give, and that can all be pretty stressful in that moment. Um, but Roughly speaking, a two mil per kilo bolus of seven percent hypertonic saline is going to increase um, the sodium by roughly somewhere between four to five millimole per liter in that patient. So you're kind of, you know, we said we don't want to kind of increase it more than that amount initially. So you, most of the time, if you know you've got seven percent, roughly seven percent solution, a two mil per kilo bolus is probably going to be um, a, a good go-to in that emergency setting. But then again, you've got to, at that point in time, you, you know, if you've gotten it out of the crisis, you've got to stop and think and slow down and work out what's going on with that case and how you're going to achieve increasing that sodium from that point on slowly and safely. Um, I guess if they're actively seizing, you've got this um, 
other option of do I give benzos and you can um, they, they they sometimes don't respond the, the, these um, dyspne- severe dysnatremias sometimes don't respond that well to um, benzos uh, when they're seizuring but yeah definitely have those on board as well to um, get control of the situation. That's great. And do you have a look? So after you've um, uh, you've administered that hypotonic, do you, do you wait a, a little bit of time, or do you do you want to have a look? Say, I don't know, five minutes, ten minutes after you've um, given that bolus to find out what what it's done to to the patient's sodium. Yeah. So I think yeah. So then you're moving into the next part of the strategy, and I think that was the other part of your question: is um, do we often get to where we expect to go with these um, sodium deficit formulas and and all of that. So I think, yeah, what you need to do then is sort of slow down, um, get your monitoring strategy in in place. So that's going to be how frequently am I going to be rechecking this sodium to work out whether it's coming up um, as I expected, Um, appreciating that it's probably not going to do what you calculate it to do and that's okay um, as long as you've got your checkpoints in place. So sometimes we'll have um, sodium rechecks even hourly. Um, if, we, if we're getting a better handle of things, we'll stretch the sodium rechecks out to two hourly, four hourly, etc. cetera. Um, but in that initial acute, acute um, phase, then yeah, you might do a sodium after that bolus about an hour later, then maybe two hours later. Um, and, and go and sort of see what see what's happening. Um, the I guess yeah these these cases are complicated as we sort of said in terms of total body sodium content um, and water deficits as and and excesses as well. So you've got to be thinking about all the things that are going on in the body that are driving those 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 changes. So in these hyponatremic patients, um, if they've also got an element of hypovolemia or a circulating volume deficit, what you've got to understand is that if you correct that volume depletion state, you're going to take away some of the body's um, stimulus for antidiuretic hormone. If you take away a stimulus for antidiuretic hormone, that means less water is going to be retained at the level of the kidneys, right? And therefore, you could have more of an upshoot of sodium than you predict. So yeah, you could you could sit down and do your right, how much sodium do I need to give this patient to correct it over, you know, correct it over 24 hours at no more than this amount. Um, but then as soon as, you know, the volume status starts being tinkered with, and even the potassium um uh levels and supplementation, which we can talk about as well if you if you like. Um you know, all these other things come into play, which can muck around with things and cause more dramatic upswings of sodium than you calculated and expected. Um, and you've, you've just got to be aware of that. So you do your calculations and you still plan for how you want to, you want it all to change, but just be aware it may do what you don't expect. And that's why you've got to have your repeat sodium um, values checked so that you can go okay this isn't going to plan i need to slow things down even more or you know um that that that's uh, definitely something to keep in mind and that, that's a good point erica do you see do you would you supplement other things at the at the same time and and obviously look at the look at the whole patient about what else is going on i suppose we, t- we can get fixated with um correcting one thing can't, can't we or maybe me um yeah <laughs> so, so do you do you look at uh at that other thing and and 
add that as a separate infusion? Um, sorry, can I understand your question a bit more? Do you mean like, do you mean speci- you're talking about potassium in, in yeah. this instance? Yeah. So if you had a really hypokalemic patient that was also really hyponatremic, um, I guess you've, you've got to appreciate that supplementation of that potassium to that to that patient if it's if it's total body potassium deplete you giving that potassium is going to um, allow for potassium to flow into that body and then move intracellularly and cause shifts with um with uh sodium ions so that you get more movement of sodium um into the extracellular space so that is another reason for a potential increase in sodium levels beyond what you anticipated how do how I guess would I approach that I mean I guess if you've got you you still need to treat that hypokalemia right because that's still a derangement that could be affecting that patient clinically it's just being aware that 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 through supplementing that potassium your sodium could come up a little bit quicker than you expected so all that means is in your calculations for increasing sodium you've just got to be a little bit less aggressive with that, if that makes sense. So you can you can look up these formulas. I think one of them is the Androgay-Medeus formula where you can work out how much, okay, how much a, a, this liter of fluid containing this amount of sodium is going to change my sodium concentration. Um, and then with that, all you do is factor in the potassium that you're also giving and one potassium ion that you're giving effectively is going to equate to giving one sodium ion as well. So say you calculated, oh, I need this patient to have, you know, 100 millimoles of sodium, um, you know, and you also had 20 millimoles of potassium in there, then you would only calculate to give 80 millimoles of sodium, if that makes sense. So you're just kind of, you're, you're just saying the potassium is going to affect my sodium increase I'm just going to call it one sodium and um and be less aggressive with my sodium because of that so I would still you still need to treat the hypokalemia just be aware of the effect that it's going to have on the sodium change and and when we're worried about the I suppose the overcorrection and osmotic demyelination in the patients I suppose that even if we play the game and are as controlled as we can be we, we can still get that uh, um um that sequelae from yeah um from changing the, the sodium so i suppose I, I, I think it's good to say as a caveat but how about a situation i think, I think i've got two situations and hopefully these are not not uh, curveballs yeah. i know you're worried yeah. about this but because uh, <laughs> because they, they they play with our minds don't they but say if you've if you've overcorrected for whatever reason yeah um you know you think you've played the game say you've you, you had a 110 of uh of, of sodium um, and then you give a bit of hypertonic saline, and now it's on like one twenty-five. Do you, do you, and you know, twenty minutes later, do you, do you think, um, would would you think like, well, obviously, like stop <laughs> is probably a good thing, but yeah. would you, would you think about, um, you know, giving a hypertonic fluid or DDAVP in that scenario, or do you think that sometimes you're, are you, are you just gonna start messing around with more? Um, you yeah. know, cause more issues or you know, do, yeah. do you suggest that people should correct an overcorrection? I would suggest people correct an overcorrection. I think especially that the example that did you say 110 to 125? That, yeah. like, that, that's a pretty dramatic overcorrection if if that patient was living chronically at that hypo in that hyponatremic state. So I would 
I would err on the side of trying to bring it back down. And and you don't have to bring it back down to 110. You just sort of want to bring it back down to a level that is going to, you know, still fit within that rough rule where we say you want it to be less than 12 millimole per, per litre per day. In this case, we've gone kind of twice that haven't we what have we done we've gone from 110 to yeah one um to, to yeah, 125 yeah so we've got yeah. yeah so we've gone we have gone over that um so yeah but you wouldn't have to bring it down to 110 i don't think but bring it down i don't know yeah 115 something like that and i would normally it depends on the um yeah the the the, the volume status as well but i guess giving free water again um, so giving that you can give that giving free water we haven't yet sort of spoken about that multiple ways you can administer that I think probably in this setting um, you'd probably going to give it as in the form of um, d5w or or in other words five percent dextrose um, knowing that that is most likely going to be metabolized in in most patients to free water so give extra free water and then try and bring that sodium down. And you mentioned DDAVP. So essentially that would just be giving the patient more antidiuretic hormone to allow them to hold on to more um, water and, and help drive that um, sodium down again. Cool. Um, I would say I probably more commonly have treated those with um you know, just giving more free free water to bring it down. Yeah, and and the other one, I suppose, is that um, if you if you look at the literature, and again, it's like pretty sparse. I think in the in the veterinary field about um, managing hyponatremic patients, and often it, I think they refer to osmotic demyelination, and I. I, I pretty sure that a lot of them are, are Addisonian um, patients. I think there's mm. there's a couple that. Um, I think Dick Church is saw at North Shore that he wrote up a, a long time ago, but um, I think I think they were a couple of those were were Addisonian patients, and so if we have an Addisonian patient that's kind of like driving um, that uh, marked hyponatremia, wh- where do you mm. think about? So if you suspect Addisonian, where would you think about treating the Addisonian part of it, and um, and is there anything you would prefer to use? Obviously, there's you know very limited evidence, I'm sure, but um, but but um, in yeah. in your experience, I know these are very these are very rare um, yeah, problems. Totally. Let's let's, yeah. <laughs> let's state that. But I suppose yeah. if you if you get really low sodiums, um, that I think Andersonian's got you know one of those things on the on the on the list to consider. Mm. I must admit, I think um, I don't know if I've just been lucky with these, but I feel like. Most of the time, if I've got an Addisonian with a really low sodium, those pa- those are patients. And going back to total body sodium content and, and water balances, and thinking about that in in these patients, those are patients that are deplete usually of of sodium because they don't have aldosterone and they're losing a lot of sodium in the in their in their urine. Um, so you know, most of those cases are going to be hypovolemic, right? And so initially, your initial treatment is going to be managing that hypovolemia and as we said when you start addressing the hypovolemia and circulating volume issues you're going to have a bit of an increase in sodium there anyway um so just managing that yeah the volume issues you're going to have some effect um and then i think i would probably like depending on 
it, you know, how severe we're talking here. If, if the patient doesn't have clinical signs and I'm kind of in that phase of, okay, the sodium's going to come up anyway when I start my mineralocorticoid treatment, I may not necessarily be mucking around with hypertonic saline and sodium-containing fluids, you know, to specifically use those to bring the sodium up. I might be just relying at that point on my administration of mineralocorticoid to to um, to deal with that, and then and then having my checkpoints in place to see how rapidly things change. And I find with using something like hydrocortisone, which I appreciate isn't going to be available in every, every practice, but that is something that I, you know, we, we have the, the, the capacity to titrate it a bit and, and stop it quickly if we need. Um, uh, it's, uh, yeah, as I think we spoke about this before, I guess if you're giving a slug of DEX, you can't really take that away and you've given that mineralocorticoid and you could see some rapid changes, but um, I'm hoping that you know, in in a lot of the um, general practice settings, hopefully, you know that when we're not seeing as many of those really severe, severe ones, and it's more in the ICU setting where we're tinkering around more with the with the hydrocortisone. But that would be my general approach: would be most of the time getting away with managing the circulating volume issues and the effect of sodium on that effect of that on sodium, and then tinkering with a, a hydrocortisone CRI um, to to see what happens there. And then obviously, if you, you know, in the really severe ones, if you had clinical signs, those are the ones where I may need to reach for the, the, the hypertonic saline to get them out of that crisis zone, as we sort of discussed before. I, I think to, to go back, it's, it's really difficult, in, or these, these patients are really difficult to, to manage in some way and, and trying to calculate what's what uh, sodium that they need if they're um, severely hyponatremic and mm. then factoring in the other things. And then if you have uh, another deficiency involved in, in that mm. that you think might correct it, then it, it kind of makes it another degree um, harder mm. to work yeah. out where things are going to go. I suppose that's, that's yeah. you, 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 we think we are controlling things, but obviously we're, we're, we're not, but I suppose it's that to try and do no harm and minimize your, your inter interventions but that that's great i think that's um right yeah no i think that's a good point it's it's mostly a lot of it is is coming up with a plan and realizing what you know what you're trying to achieve in terms of what's safe but then recognizing that the patient may you know do what you don't expect because you haven't appreciated the circulating volume you haven't appreciated how much sodium loss retention or water loss or retention is going on at the level of the kidneys and ending up in the urine so you know there's so many things at play so just come up with your plan have your checkpoints in place and adjust um, the plan accordingly <laughs> you know if things aren't if things aren't um, playing ball yeah that's that's great and um uh and talking about sort of that the high so if we have a, a markedly hypernatremic um patient so you, do, do you have like a a a similar approach obviously not giving hypertonic saline in these patients but do you have a, yeah. a similar try and get them down um a little bit uh quite quickly if they're showing neurological signs but then working out that sort of free water deficit and correcting that over a period of time yeah i i find so elevated sodium easier to treat i don't know why whether it's just easier to get my head around than 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 low sodium i think because i guess if you think of hypernatremia and you think about the causes you know you, you've either 
you've either got a net loss of water or a net gain of sodium and and the net gain of sodium side of things is a bit rarer you know we we do get those occasional intoxications where they run out and drink a whole lot of seawater and that kind of thing but we're we're most commonly dealing with um uh having to just give them back um, additional water relative relative to, to sodium um and so as you said you know working out your free water deficit and you can look up those formulas working out your free water deficit and saying okay this is how much um, water this patient is behind in or depleting and then working out um, how how I guess quick or rapidly to give that over a period of time in order to not change um, the sodium in a chronic case uh, more than sort of 0.5 mil equivalents um, per litre per hour. So the, the, the kind of rules in terms of shifting sodium levels are the same for low or high sodium. So that makes it easier to remember, right? Um, and, and so you can, yeah, you can still, you can still work it out, but you kind of, you're kind of supplementing instead of sodium deficit, you're going, this is, this patient probably has a, a, a water deficit that they need to um, manage. And it's a great call with the toxicities as well that the um, the, the play day or, or those um, there was a case report wasn't there about uh, a, a patient ingesting chocolate that was given at home um, salt water to to mm. to uh, to mm. make it vomit and it and it um, obviously caused well it, it had an non-lethal dose of chocolate I believe and um, yeah. the sodium derangement lasted yeah. for a long time yeah. um i, I yeah. blame uh, um you know james bond movies that uh so so uh, people ingesting salt water to make them sick after toxicity but i oh, don't know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know um but yeah. yeah but i think it's 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 good point to you know make it make it clear not to you know not to muck around too much with um with salt it, it you know it might have a an effect but um it doesn't always yeah. make them vomit and then it's a massive salt load and uh, and yeah. that can be a, a, a yeah. severe problem. So you so, hear yeah. about the, the odd tragic um, case of the inadvertent administration of hypertonic saline, where you know the the intention was to give a lower sodium containing fluid, like a 0.9 percent sodium, and someone's kind of said, "Oh, can you get me some sodium chloride?" And then someone's grabbed the hypertonic off the off the shelf as a mistake and you know that's gone into the patient that is the more yeah like that yeah I guess yeah tragic iatrogenic um situation but again if that's if that's recognized it can be um it can be corrected because that's probably happened quite quickly and you can correct that um um quickly as well and and are you as um so when you're correcting are they are they I'd, I'd like your um take that it conceptually a bit a bit easier because most of the time it's a free water deficit rather than than, mm. than salt gain mm. um but do you do you think they they follow the rules as as well so if you work out that free water deficit and you administer that that they they play the game or or yeah, um, or how often no do you always. reevaluate <laughs> <laughs> how often do you reevaluate have, these yeah. yeah yeah similar again i think Again, when you're calculating your free water deficit, all you're trying to work out is what they're behind in at that point in time, but you haven't factored in insensible losses. So they're going to have from that point in time where you're like, okay, I'm behind in five to um, maybe high amount, I'm behind in a thousand mils, for example, of free water in this patient. Um, but that, that patient's going to have ongoing insensible losses, which is low sodium 
losses, so essentially free water losses. And if the cause of their hyponatremia is something like diabetes insipidus, they're going to have, they could have massive ongoing free water losses that you haven't calculated in, in that, in that formula. So yeah, I think when you're in that first snapshot of time where you're doing that calculation, you're still going to have to think about what ongoing losses does this patient have of free water? Um, and do I need to, yeah, add that on top of my, my deficit calculation as well? So you've often got um, a couple of things going on. You've got your free water deficit calculation. Then you've got to think about your maintenance requirements, um, which there will be some sodium content in your maintenance fluids. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the time what we'll do is we'll try and match our or like roughly match our, our maintenance fluid rate, um, sodium concentration to a similar ish sodium concentration of the patient's blood just to kind of prevent too much too much swinging there so that essentially we're kind of saying I want to have control a bit more control here and I want most of the changes really to be do to be um, about what I'm giving in free water and then so you've got your free water your maintenance and then thinking about your ongoing losses and you may have to increase your free water um, rates depending on what you end up working like the free water losses are from um, yeah mostly from the urinary tract. Um, I think one other comment on that is if you can give the water via the gastrointestinal tract, like sometimes the patient just wants to drink, you know, and we're we're kind of mucking around with working out G5W rates per hour and getting all excited, but it's like just give it a bowl of water and it'll probably drink, you know, and you can still do your maths and do it slowly, but you just – allow the patient to to drink or you could even um do your your calculations and deliver that water via a nasogastric tube and i think we um we're often quick to just jump to to fluid therapy but yeah sometimes there's an easier and um potentially cheaper and better way to to give that free water back yeah it's a it's a good point we, we um we we like to think we're involved or, or uh, smarter than the body but but we're not at all are we we're, we're just <laughs> kids playing in the sand and uh yeah um and we just need to uh, let the let the body sort itself out but uh, but i suppose or, or allow um you know calculate the amount of fluid to to water to to give and administer and allow the patient yeah, to, to you can you can still have your safety limits in there and how much water you think is okay for them to have but you can let them do it themselves you know with with and just have your measure measure your water and 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 do it that way so yeah and um and i suppose at the same time when you think i suppose with both the highs and lows of sodium that that for the most part you know we need to think about the the cause of of that and and um mm. and whether that needs to be sort of treated as well so though you're Absolutely, you're yeah. focusing like we're focusing on what to do with the with the um uh, with the sodium sort of concentration of the patient at the same yeah. time we do need to think about the the underlying sort of causes and um yeah. and, and and potentially think about managing that particularly in the in the in the client size as uh, as as well yeah absolutely yeah totally and i think um in terms of thinking about the underlying causes you can uh, i think it's a good exercise to look over those um algorithms that kind of go um, that you can kind of work through where you have either a hypernatremic or a hyponatremic patient and you can kind of work through, okay, is it is it hypovolemic, hypovolemic or normovolemic and just try and look at um, 
what differential diagnosis you would expect uh, under those given categories. Um, and that can kind of help you a bit conceptually. I think practically speaking, those those algorithms are not always super helpful because often you find yourself in the situation where you're like, okay, is my patient actually normovolemic or am I just missing a hypovolemia? Do you know, so practically you can, they can, they can be tricky, but I think conceptually when you're working through your, your, your differentials and, and, and trying to make sure you're thinking of everything, um, working through those, those algorithms are, you know, that can be helpful. Excellent. Excellent. Um, do, do you think we've, we've missed anything or is there anything you think we should, um, uh, cover? I think we could, you know, you could go on for ages with <laughs> about this. You know, we, we could we could do two separate podcasts on either hyper or hypo um, natremia. But I think, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we've covered some of the, the core concepts and the sort of what not to do in terms of, um, you know, changing sodium levels too quickly and just um, appreciating that we do need to have regular checkpoints in place in the in these chronic um, hyper or hyponatremia cases because I guess above all we just want to do no harm um, and, and that's um, one of the yeah really important things. No absolutely and, and um, I suppose that there is a, a, a podcast on MCRIP for some people that might listen to, to that um, back in back in the day I think quite a few years ago now but uh, on managing hyponatremia so um, you can listen to what people um, what they do in, in people or that, that, that sort of tacit knowledge um but uh but agreed i think i think the the point is that these are quite rare cases aren't they as well so i suppose it's quite good um to just remember i, I suppose certain certain you know rules everyone, i think everyone has that sort of 0.5 millimoles um uh, per liter per yeah. per, uh, per hour in their mind and, and not necessarily yeah. sure where that comes from but but yeah. also that if you're, you know, if you need to correct something, you know, a, a little bit of a jump is not necessarily a, a, a bad thing, or, or a little bit of a decrease is not necessarily a bad thing, um, to get them out of that crisis. But then, kind of stop and and have a think, um, mm -hmm. and definitely, yeah, we'll put some um, show notes uh, about this and hopefully some references that might help uh, people um, if they are stuck. So, um, so thank you very much for your time. We'll, we'll wrap it up there, Erica. So thank you for your time. Yeah, having me. That's great, yeah. Um, and uh, thanks again for listening. So, so you don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a review, five-star review, please, on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any, any, anybody, um, we're happy to have them listen to us. We'll place any show notes in the RBC pages. So if you just type in RBC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.